This is Jeff Cooper with the All Night Show on CJJC, where we're at the Orpheum Theater, and Chuck Gerard has just ended his concert, and we're here to interview him and talk a bit about his music and his songs, so we really hope you enjoy this. Okay, Chuck, how did you start in music? Well, I started out, believe it or not, in the late 50s, uh, way back when rock and roll was in its infancy. I first got interested in music rock music, rock type music by hearing Elvis Presley and uh, that kind of made me decide that's what I wanted to do, something on that order with my life and uh, I started a little vocal group in high school we made a demonstration record in San Francisco I lived in Northern California at that time we went down to Hollywood to uh, try to get a record contract and try to make it in show business you know. and lo and behold we did that we got a record contract and we put out uh, two national hits in the early 60s. The group was called the Castells and the songs were called, one was called Sacred and one was called So This Is Love. These became national hits. Uh, after that group broke up, which is, we stayed together about three or four years, we then, um, uh, uh, I got into, a, I became involved in a studio group, which was uh, headed by a guy named Gary Usher, who had co-written a, a big hit with the Beach Boys called In My Room. Mm -hmm. And Gary was going around doing all these hot rod surf skateboard type albums that were coming out in the mid-60s, you know. And uh, so we were making a living doing these kind of albums, just going around and uh, singing these hot rod type songs. And that lasted for a few years, and that's how I made my living. Then the Beatles came in kind of wrecked all that and I just uh, the only thing left for me to do really was to make a living was I got a bar band together and I started playing mm -hmm. in nightclubs going around doing the dance music for people mm -hmm. and um, then came drugs and I kind of dropped music you know seriously for that five years that I was involved in drugs which and then that whole period led up to me becoming a Christian. Mm -hmm. The next question was how did you meet the Lord? Exactly. Well that was a turning point in my life that uh, involvement with drugs. I was in it for five years and, and I, you know at that time the whole national attitude was of spiritual consciousness. You know everyone was trying to seek out, look, looking for uh, truth and meanings to the to, to why they're, you know, definitions of why we're here and all that, you know. And uh, I was involved in that whole spiritual quest uh, and I was I was one of the more serious seekers, I guess, because I was determined that I was going to find out the ultimate truth. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't want to just accept something that was short of really getting me in right with God. Mm -hmm. And I tried a lot of philosophies through the five years, a lot of religions, and um, was really kind of uh, biased against Christianity because I had been raised in a quote Christian atmosphere that had not really imparted any real sense of you know, communication with God to me. So I didn't really think Christianity had a lot to offer. Mm -hmm. But one night, I, through a long series of circumstances, which I won't go into right now, I went up to a, a church called Calvary Chapel, which was becoming known in the Orange County, California area because a lot of counterculture people were starting to go there. So I was curious as to why they were going there and what they had found, because I knew a lot of them had been drug users like myself. And I went up and I heard the gospel for the first time that night and it really just seemed to be my night because it all clicked together and I, I really, it answered a lot of the questions that I had uh, uh, had in my heart, left unanswered yet, and I committed my life to the Lord that night and uh, became a Christian. That was early, about, about February 1970. Thank you. Thank you.
We've been Christians now about six years, and before we came to be Christians, um, we were all drawn into a, uh, a friendship through some pretty weird circumstances. Um, about 11 years ago, boy, is it that long? 11 years ago, man. Uh, <laughs> I was in junior high school, you know, I was, I was young. <laughs> Here we are at the 1998 Love's Dome reunion tour. <laughs> we met each other, seriously though, um, in the midst of our drug psychedelic period when we were, we all found out that we had a common uh, interest in finding out more about this life and what it meant, who we were. And we felt that drugs, that psychedelics, LSD, mescaline, and all that stuff were part of God's plan in the last days to reach men who could be reached through no other means, we thought. We thought that LSD was the key to spiritual knowledge. And we got involved in all the things that go along with the drug world, you know, the Eastern philosophies. I was a vegetarian, and at one point in my life, I weighed 122 pounds. I was on Dr. Eret's mucusless diet healing system. First of all, you give up meat, right? Then you give up uh, dairy products. Then you give up all starches like potatoes and rice and bread. And eventually you're supposed to get on green leaf, vegetables, fruits and nuts. Then when you really get it together and you really start getting purified, you just eat fruits and nuts, okay? Then when you really get it together, you don't eat. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, you know, we were involved in that whole thing, thinking the Beatles were, I thought the Beatles were second messiahs or something, you know, and, and that their albums like Sgt. Pepper was coming down with this spiritual wisdom, and, and then Magical Mystery Tour came out, and it had stuff like, you know, Blue Jay Way on it, where it said, all my friends have gone astray, and please be home soon, and come over, you know, to where I'm at, like, like George Harrison had found the inner light or whatever, and I really thought the Beatles had discovered something, and they were trying to convey it to us in little doses, you know, and then my friends and I, we got into to the next album, which was, came out was the White Double Album, right? And we went to the store to get the new Beatle album, and we discovered it was just totally white with no printing on it, just embossed letters said the Beatles. And we just blew our minds. We went, wow, man, this is the spiritual one. Look, it's all white, man. <laughs> Only the Beatles were put no printing on their album, man. Oh, it's so cool, you know. So we took it home, and we put it on the... I lived in Hawaii at this time, and, I, and this wasn't with any of these guys. It was with some other friends of mine. And we put it on, and we're waiting to hear the spiritual message come forth. And we're all kind of looking at each other, you know, going, what's happening here, you know. And we're trying to act like we're getting something out of it because nobody wanted to admit that they weren't heavy, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, how much can you get out of Rocky Raccoon, after all, you know? <laughs> Anyhow, we felt, I felt ripped off by the Beatles. I felt that the Beatles had copped out, that if they did know anything spiritual, they were afraid to tell it, and perhaps they didn't. And so we got obsessed with this idea of having a band that could communicate God to people. And we started, in the middle of our psychedelic period, a, a God band, actually, that was called Love Song. And we would go into nightclubs and we'd play Proud Mary and all that stuff you have to play, knock on wood for the dancers. And we'd throw in our God songs in the middle of all this, you know. And a lot of them had Jesus' name in it. And this was long before Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky or James Taylor came out and said Jesus in a song. And everybody goes, oh, James Taylor, you know, the new prophet. And... Uh, it was long before that, you know. And people were just not used to hearing Jesus' name in a rock and roll band in a bar, you know. 
And we would go out and evangelize people on our breaks. We would um, go out and say, hey, why don't you come out with us on Sunday? We're going to drop acid and get into God, you know. And uh, it was a classic example of the blind leading the blind, you know, of people who were sincerely deceived, sincerely wrong, you know. And two and a half years later, after we started that first band, the Lord was faithful to draw us up to a place called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. And, and uh, for the first time in my life, the gospel was communicated to me. And for the first time in my life, lights went off, and I went, that's what it's all about. And I really discovered that what I've been looking for for my whole life was Jesus Christ, the victorious Son of God who died on the cross and three days later rose again from the dead. Go ahead. Okay, let's talk a bit about your music now then. Mm-hmm. Most of uh, the songs like on your love song album and that were basically scripture. And uh, how do you go when you, you start to write a song? Uh-huh. What, what do you look for to get real meaning and depth in a song? What motivates you to write, write a good song? Okay, well, I suppose this is not what most people would call sound theology, but uh, I, I work very much by mood. And uh, what I try to do, my approach in a song, basically, is to try to relate to a person on an emotional level first. To me, before I was a Christian, the kind of songs that really meant something to me were songs that related to me emotionally, that, that, were, that were reflecting something that I was going through. Um, that I could identify with. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do, rather than try to speak above people's heads spiritually, coming on with, oh, Jesus is great and we're all going to heaven when we die, I try to get down to the basic level of life, where we are now, trying to draw the person into the, the feelings and the sensations that we are living in now, and using that as a platform to present the spiritual answer to mm-hmm. whatever questions are being confronted. So I try to use a lot of different uh, approaches. I don't, I don't consciously choose an approach. Some of my songs are based on scripture. Some are based on personal experience. Some are stories. Some are, um, uh, I think there's more imagery in Written on the Wind, for instance, than there is in other albums. I wasn't trying to be as propagandizing in that album mm-hmm. as I had in previous albums. I was more like trying to present pictures that could draw people into a state of mind where God could take it from there. And I think I succeeded in that particular album. It's not necessarily a direction. It doesn't mean the next album's going to be like that. Because I don't really know. I don't even really go into an album with that much of a preconceived notion of what it's going to become. It sort of shapes itself as it goes, and then I eliminate and add as, I, as needed to make a complete package, you know. But it's, it's not a preconceived idea in general. Now we'll be playing a bit of uh, Chuck Gerard's songs, and we'll be asking him to explain a bit about them. Okay, Love Song. Well, Love Song was off the first album. Many of the melodies and some of the lyric ideas off the first album were written pre-Christian, believe it or not. Uh, And we would take the songs after we became Christians and just adapt. You know, some of them didn't have lyrics yet. Some of them had partial lyrics, and we would make them scriptural, and they some of those became part of the first album. Love Song was an example of a melody that had been written years before I became a Christian. We needed a song, we wanted to do a kind of a concept album, and we wanted a song to introduce the album that wasn't really necessarily going to be a complete song. And uh, so I just wrote the words, kind of trying to say what we were trying to do with the group, 
it's really based on that scripture for he who has ears to hear let him hear what the spirit has to say to the churches you know uh, in this case the individual and um, it was just a little song that was meant to introduce the album and it turned out to be one of the more popular songs on the album Little Country Church well, Little Country Church was written with a friend of mine that was in the original love song called Fred Field. Fred and I had a wonderful working writing relationship because Fred would just play the guitar chords and he would let me do everything else. We didn't collaborate in the sense of I would change chords or he would change lyrics. So uh, this was a little a melody he came up with one day on, the, on the, a little chord line rhythm idea he came up with on the guitar one day. We were up in uh, Northern California doing some ministry, staying in a person's home and there was a picture of a little country church on the wall mm. and I just started uh, using that as a spin-off and the lyrics started coming and I started relating it to what was happening at Calvary and it sort of became a sort of an anthem of what was happening in the early um, part of the Jesus movement quote which was you know started around 1970 and uh, became sort of a uh, national image for God's move in the in the church front seat back seat Believe it or not, written in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> we were just uh, playing at Oral Roberts University, and Tom Coombs and I wrote that song, and he just started uh, uh, doing some kind of country Buck Owens-type strumming, and I started singing the country Buck Owens-type melody, and that's what came out. I don't even remember how the lyric came about. It just seemed to us to be a, a cute allegory for letting the Lord take control of your life. Let us be one. Tom Coombs' composition. Uh, real hard song for us to get together, but we never tried to limit ourselves musically. We would try to tackle anything that came in, and that song didn't sound good for a long time. And then it turned out to be one of our better, better songs. Uh, just really, I think it's self-explanatory and uh, song I've always enjoyed very much. A brand new song. Uh, Again, new Christians, and that's one of the first images, you know, the Lord gave me a brand new song to sing, and we just tried to, some of the key lines in there that I'm particularly happy with are, you know, the one that we've been hearing has been a hit too long, you know, just the idea that Jesus can change your life, and uh, we tried to make it just kind of um, uh, a lot of vocal harmony and a kind of a uplifting praise type feeling to the song. Two Roads. Uh, it didn't have anything to do with the writing of it. Nice song, yeah. though. I like it. <laughs> okay, we'll Can't cut, explain we'll it to cut you. Cut that one off. <laughs> that was on Maranatha. Great record. Yeah. Great yeah. song. I produced it, That's but I didn't write it. I knew you had something to do with it. Yeah. He told me to ask. Okay. Good rock song. And roll, <laughs> rock and roll preacher. Okay, autobiographical. Uh, really, truly is. I used to do that. I used to, you know, get. I lived in the country. Uh, for a period of time on a ranch and I my folks owned a little sh small ranch and I lived in the bunkhouse and I would come home and I lived and breathed records and after I'd finished my homework I would just get into picking the chords apart and learning mm -hmm. on my piano and that was my early rock backgrounds and then I tried to transmit my Christian experience into that you know mm -hmm. it's just kind of a little light-hearted autobiographical song you ask me why um, Written before Carol King's Sweet Season, believe it or not, <laughs> which is the riff, you know, but it really wasn't copped from her. I had written it two years before that song came out. And um, I wrote it in San Jose, California, I remember. We were at a meeting uh, in the morning, and I was just messing around. 
and I was feeling that way that day, you know, just I was thinking about, you know, how can you, you know, the world understand how a Christian can be happy in the face of all the trouble in the world, and I was trying to state that kind of a thought, mm -hmm. so that was my stating of said thought. <laughs> Tina Jera. Okay, this one I love to answer because it mm. keeps me from, I've been thinking of having a little card to hand out to people in lieu of explaining the song. <laughs> I must have explained it a thousand times. Yeah. Basically, it's this. It's very simple, really. Uh, I wanted to write, uh, I was raised on that kind of music, you know, four chord music and ballads, teenage ballads, and I wanted to write, I've always wanted to write a song like that, but I never wanted to do a parody of it because it's serious music to me. So, I started writing the tune, and I was using the, the, those kind of chords, and the first line that came to my mind was, she was young, and she was born in the teenage era. Well, this didn't exactly sound like classy writing to me, but as I played with the words, they sort of, you know, melted into a contraction which became Tina Jera. Well, I thought, isn't this clever? It sounds like a girl's name. I'll use it like it's the name of a girl, and, I, and then I'll make the town that she's from, Tina Jera. In a sense, I'm saying her name is anybody, and she's born anywhere. And uh, we tried very hard to do the um, the music very seriously. We we at first originally had a group called the Innocents. Maybe some some of the people might remember uh, they used to back a girl named Kathy Young on their hits, "A Thousand Stars in the Sky." And mm -hmm. the Innocents had "Honest I Do" and "Gee Whiz." And there, uh, the lead singer is a friend of of ours that hangs around the studio. And we had put them on, but it sounded too dated with them. So we got some of the members of another group that I know that are really good singers and we went in and did some real, tried to do some real jazzy modern renditions of the old-fashioned harmonies that they would do and tried to make them be really interesting and different. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of a, a contemporary version of an old-fashioned type song and uh, I think that the idea of the song, the music kind of being a parody in a sense with such a serious lyric really accomplished what I wanted to accomplish with the song. But as far as hidden meanings, there are none. It's just no more difficult than, than the fact it's a symbolic name. Something supernatural. What can I say? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most requested songs I have, one of the easiest to write. I mean, you don't really write a song like that. You know, it's just you reassemble a lot of things that have already been written. And uh, I was just goofing around with a guitar one day and started thinking about the kind of jive person that would be you know, into that kind of music and what he might be thinking about a Christian friend, a person that, or a friend that would have become a Christian. And that's really how the song came about. It's just mm -hmm. kind of one of those accidents. Lay your burden down. Okay, I was getting ready to go into the studio to do my first solo album, which I knew had to be, it was going to be compared with Love Song no matter what. And I knew that I had to put some thought and some... You know, I couldn't take too many chances with the album. I had to be fairly safe material. And uh, so I was going in, I had everything chosen. I was about a week away from starting date. And I had heard a hymn, an old hymn that had that line in it, Lay Your Burdens at the Foot of the Cross. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a great idea, you know, if, if uh, kids could hear that, who aren't going to listen to that old hymn. So I just kind of set about trying to say that in a more contemporary fashion. And uh, to me, it's like, you know, pretty traditional thought put into a contemporary format and after I wrote it I just knew it had to go on the album so I crowded something else out and went after it and there it was it's one of my most uh, successful songs return personal prophecy to me
really. It originally was called Return to Your First Love, but I didn't want to tip it off with the title, so I just shortened it to Return. And I was up at summer camp, and uh, I was a Christian about six months, and I found a lot of the things that were sung about in the song creeping into my Christian walk. In fact, when I started to write the lyrics, I didn't have any preconceived plan to write a song like that. And all of a sudden I'm going, you know, where's the song going? What is it saying, man? And I'm recognizing myself in the song, you know, this is happening to you. What is this though? And it felt like a very personal statement to me from the Lord. And then uh, the punchline came and I realized that what God was trying to say was also not just for me, but for the body. And uh, so I finished it that night, sang it for the assembly at, up at camp the next day and I had a lot of really great reaction on it. People were saying that it really convicted them and ministered mm -hmm. to them. And So um, I decided to do it on a record and it came out like a country song kind of. I didn't mm -hmm. really intend for it to, but it did. So. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a pretty potent message to the church. I know it is to me, personally. Mm. I hope it is to others. Praise the Lord. What would you say is your main purpose for writing these songs and performing like you did for us tonight? Well, I became a Christian in 1970, and when my life changed, I just saw the tremendous uh, vehicle that I had for uh, expressing this, ch this possibility of this change in other people's lives. And... And it's my desire to really bring people into a closer understanding of who Jesus is. I think perhaps anyone out there listening that might be wondering, you know, what it is we're talking about here. It's not religion we're talking about. It's a, it's that personal relationship with Jesus Christ that can can change your life, can make you a new person, literally. Our world is crying out right now for change. And they're, they're, they're reaching out in all these different areas for um, something to satisfy the inner need. What the inner need is, is a spiritual need and that can only be fulfilled through a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. It's, it's much more than I can go into here as far as the theology of it, but I think all the person needs to know is that all men fall short of the glory of God and all have sinned. And um, they ha at first have to recognize that condition in their own life before they can even really come to Jesus. Once they recognize that condition uh, and they're willing to turn from that condition, the rest is just simply believing in Jesus. Not just believing historically that He existed, but trusting in Him, relying upon Him daily. And this is what I've entered into, is this relationship where He's become the Lord of my life. And this is where the change comes from. Without that, it would just be religion, which isn't what we're into. A uh, person uh, has to accept that in faith, however. It's not something that can be you know, intellectually grasped. Uh, otherwise, if it could be, then it wouldn't... D demand faith, but what a person has to do to enter into the relationship is to just really just turn their life over to Jesus, as we say, to, to commit your life, to say, Lord, take the reins. Uh, I'm tired of trying to do my own thing and I want to do yours. If you're willing to do that, then Jesus can really come into your life and really start to affect change. It won't happen overnight. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to be you one day and St. Paul the next. And a lot of people have this, you know, pious image of what Christianity is going to make them. And it isn't really. You're going to just be you. And you're going to, you know, as the Lord works with your life, you're going to become more pleasing to Him, obviously. And, and certain things are going to leave your life. Uh, you have to be willing to change. But let the Lord affect the changes. And when you let the power of God into your life, that power is sufficient to provide the changes if you're willing to yield the things that God is demanding of you. And, you know, this is something that is only can be experienced. It's like explaining, to, trying to explain to you what an orange tastes like. I can't do that. Mm. I can't explain to you what Jesus tastes like. You have to just come over and drink of the living water. And if, uh, if anyone's willing to do that, willing to commit their life, 
I guarantee them that uh, a miracle will occur in their life. It, it is a miracle. And their life will be changed. And everything they've ever wanted, really, will be accomplished in their life through committing it to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.